0: Chapter 4 A History of America, the American Period by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 The Whalers and Hide Traders. With the decline of the fur trade, through whose influence the Russians and Americans had first been brought to California the inhabitants of the province were compelled to rely upon other forms of foreign commerce to supply them with manufactured articles and to furnish some sort of market for their own agricultural products. Even before the fur traders ceased to appear along the coast, chance whaling ships occasionally put into a California harbor for water and fresh provisions, and gradually a mutually satisfactory trade was built up between these vessels and the Californians. Though never of very large proportions, this forum of early California commerce merits a brief description. Edmund Burke, in one of his noblest passages, speaks of the hardy New England whalers who, even before the American Revolution, had outstripped the sailors of older nations and pressed beyond the limits of the known whaling grounds to vex strange seas with their industry the war which burke so earnestly deplored temporarily stopped the activities of these adventurous new englanders but soon after its close the ships of nantucket new bedford and salem began to put to sea again in quest of their gigantic prey down the coast of south america they crept rounded the horn and finally came to the great offshore feeding ground of the pacific a few years of rich profits here and the search was extended to the north pacific In this way, the waters of Alaska, Bering Sea, and the coasts of Japan became familiar to the New England vessels before the first quarter of the century was over. As the whaling grounds extended farther and farther from home ports, it commonly required three years or more to complete a successful cruise. This long absence from a base of supplies, together with the hard and dangerous nature of the work, made it necessary that port should be found in the pacific where repairs could be made fresh water wood and food procured and the men allowed some period of rest and recuperation on shore the need for these things was especially great after the vessels had completed their cargoes and were ready for the long homeward voyage around the horn both because of their geographical location and the ease with which provisions could be obtained from the surrounding country The ports of the Hawaiian Islands and of California met all the requirements of the whaling ships and became their favorite places of resort. In obtaining supplies from the Californians, the whalers resorted to a system of barter similar to that employed by the fur traders. Each vessel had on board a small cargo of New England manufactured products, which was exchanged for fresh meat, vegetables, and other provisions necessary for the welfare of the scurvy-stricken crew in these transactions evasions of duties on a petty scale was probably common enough but the whaling vessels were interested in the trade only as a means of procuring food and so had no great incentive for organized smuggling among california ports monterey and san francisco were commonly selected by the whaling ships battered and often in a sorry plight from months of cruising in the rough waters of the north pacific for refitting and provisioning Because San Francisco was more commodious and farther removed from meddlesome officials, it was more favored than Monterey. Later, as the industry grew to larger and larger proportions, it was not unusual for as many as 30 or 40 vessels to lie at anchor at one time in the sheltering coves and estuaries behind the Golden Gate. Measured by dollars and cents, however, the trade carried on by the whaling fleet with California was never of very great importance. Its real significance, like that of the fur trade, lay in the stimulus it gave to American interest in the harbors of the Pacific and the knowledge of California's resources it brought back to the United States. In addition to the coastal fur trade and the intercourse with homeward-bound whaling vessels, the Californians had one other form of commercial contact with the outside world. This was the hide-and-tallow trade. For the origin of cattle raising in California, one must look to distant plains of Mexico and to the Spanish missionaries and explorers of the 18th century. With few exceptions, the early overland expeditions from Mexico to California, such as those undertaken by Rivera, Anza, Garces, and Fagas, brought with them a considerable number of cattle the animals which escaped slaughter and the perils of the journey served as breeding stock after the expedition reached its destination and thus became the starting point for the great herds of a later day the natural conditions of california were so thoroughly congenial to cattle raising that the development of the industry was almost unbelievably rapid before the close of the century the hills and valleys from san diego northward to the farthest point of spanish occupation were covered with the offspring of the few hundred animals driven overland from mexico by the early colonizing expeditions the californian like his ancestors in mexico was a cattle raiser by inheritance and temperament in the business as he knew it there was little of responsibility or of disagreeable labor Whatever work the round-up and slaughter required had in it a certain spice of danger and an element of sport that appealed to the Californian's native instinct for excitement and his love of the out-of-doors. Except in seasons of drought, the rains came, the grass grew, and the cattle, running wild on the range, multiplied and took care of themselves. Only in dry years was there any danger of serious loss. At such times, however, the herds might suffer severely. In 1829, for instance, it is said that 40,000 cattle died on the southern ranges and that the mission of Santa Barbara alone lost 12,000 animals during the same disastrous season. Because of the natural aptitude of the Californian for the business and the suitable natural conditions which prevailed, cattle raising became almost the sole industry of the province and virtually its only source of wealth. From the sales of hide and tallow to the foreigner, after the close of the fur trade, the Californians obtained almost everything they made use of in the way of clothing and manufactured articles. Similarly, government officials, whether civil or military, derived almost all public funds for salaries and other necessary ends from the revenues received directly or indirectly from the trade. The influence of the business was clearly marked in other fields as well. Quote, the breeding of cattle being the chief occupation of the californians writes a careful student of those early days determined their mode of life and the structure of their society and the size of their ranches nobody wanted to own less than a league square 4438 acres of land and the government granted it away without charge in tracts varying from 1 to 11 leagues to anybody who would undertake to erect a house and put a hundred head of cattle on the place." The California cattle, or black cattle as they were commonly called, were of the typical range or Mexican variety. Their legs were long and thin, their bodies small, and their horns sharp and surprisingly widespread. Both in appearance and disposition, they were more like the wild deer which herded with them than the domestic animals of our Atlantic or Middle Western states. No attempt at scientific breeding was thought of during the Mexican regime, nor would this have been profitable if put into effect. From years in to years in, the cattle ran wild, never knowing the inside of a stable or a fattening pen, but living entirely upon the grass and herbage of the limitless ranges before them. Their flesh was tough, but full of nourishment and flavor. Dried or fresh, it constituted the chief article of diet among the people of the province, and was supposed by many to account for the remarkable longevity of the Californians. The cows matured early, sometimes calving at the age of 14 months, and gave but little milk. As this was almost never used for domestic purposes by the Californians, foreigners who visited the province frequently commented unfavorably upon the absence of cream, butter and cheese from their host's stables. But, after all, the Californian was a true cattleman in this respect, since even today many of the large ranges of the West use condensed milk in place of fresh and regard butter as a needless luxury as there were no fences in the country cattle belonging to one owner frequently joined the herds of another consequently both law and custom required that every man's stock should be marked with an officially recorded brand then as now a sign of ownership wherever cattle run at large twice a year in the spring and fall great rodeos or roundups were held to apportion out the intermingled herds among the proper owners and to mark the unbranded calves these were occasions of some formality and of great bustle and stir in the placid routine of california life an official known as the u s de campo or judge of the plain presided over the proceedings the cattle were brought together in some central place and the sorting or cutting out process began to keep the thousands of frightened bewildered and maddened creatures from stampeding Cowboys, or vaqueros, rode continually about the herd, seeking to hold it together. Whenever an animal broke from the mass, a rider immediately roped him, or, seizing him by the tail with a particular twist requiring both strength and dexterity, threw him heavily to the ground. Meanwhile, each owner and his vaqueros rode in and out among the cattle, separating such animals as he found marked with his own brand from the main herd. The question of ownership was seldom a difficult matter because of the brands, and even the unbranded calves followed the cows to which they belonged. As an owner's cattle were cut out from the general herd, they were driven a little distance away to a place previously chosen and kept by themselves until the rodeo was ended. Here, the rancher branded his calves and determined the number of animals he could profitably slaughter during the coming season. A roundup of this kind was one of the most picturesque events of early California life. The vast herd of cattle, sometimes half a mile from center to circumference, the thick clouds of dust that rose from thousands of moving feet, the sudden dash after some escaping steer, the surprising feats of horsemanship, which were performed continually by the vaqueros, the bellowing of frightened and maddened bulls, the clash of horns striking horns, the wild shouts and laughter of the cowboys, all lent an air of excitement and interest that the printed page cannot reproduce the slaughtering of the cattle was done apart from the roundup generally the males of three years old and upward alone were killed and only a small portion of the meat from each animal was saved the rest went to feed the half-tamed dogs of the ranchers the vultures and the innumerable coyotes and other wild animals with which the country abounded the only marketable portions of the cattle were the hides and tallow the best of the latter was used by the native women for cooking and in the making of soap and candles the rest was melted in large pots generally obtained from the whaling ships and run into rawhide bags capable of holding nearly a half a ton apiece it was then sold at so much an arroba a standard mexican weight equal to about twenty-five pounds harrison g rogers clerk in jedediah smith's expedition was much impressed with the soap works at the San Gabriel Mission as he saw them in 1827. He thus described them quote, The soap factory consists of four large cisterns or boilers that will hold from 2,000 to 2,500 gallons each. The cistern is built in the shape of a sugar loaf made of brick, stone, and lime. There is a large iron pot or kettle fixed in the bottom where the fire strikes to set them boiling the mouth of the cisterns and the edge of the pots are lined around with sheet iron eight or ten inches wide the pots or kettles will hold from two hundred to two hundred and fifty gallons each and a great many small ones fixed in like manner the hides were cured after a fashion by pegging them out in the sun a number of holes were cut in each skin through which stakes were driven to keep the hide from curling as no great care was taken in the process of skinning Particles of flesh generally adhered to the hides, which even the California sun could not then make odorless. After this curing process, most of the hides were stored until disposed of to a foreign vessel. A few, however, were kept for local use. Some leather was tanned by the missions and an occasional rancher. But for the most part, the skins, after having been made into rawhide, found a wide variety of uses without further treatment. This rawhide, indeed, was as indispensable to the Californian of the early days as baling wire became to the rancher of later years. With the exception of the small amount of tallow and the comparatively few hides required to fill the domestic needs of the Californians, the products of the industry were all sold to the trading vessels along the coast. Before 1822, while the restrictive commercial laws of Spain remained in force, this trade was of insignificant proportions. A few bags of tallow were shipped to San Blas on government supply ships before 1813, and from 1813 to 1822 a number of vessels from South American ports, commonly called Lima ships, took back some tallow, a few hides, and a small amount of California soap. The trade in any real sense did not begin, however, until the date of Mexico's independence from Spain. In that year, the Boston firm of Bryant and Sturgis established William H. Gale, a former sea otter hunter, as a permanent agent in California, and began the systematic collection of hides for the New England market. About the same time, John Begg and Company, an English house, sent out Hugh McCulloch and William Hartnell, both of whom afterwards became prominent in California affairs, to undertake the same business. Before the next year was over, nine vessels flying various flags were disputing the field with these two pioneer firms, and the trade had taken on certain clearly-marked characteristics and a well-defined routine that lasted for nearly a quarter of a century. From 1822 to 1834, most of the hides were supplied by the missions, several of which counted their cattle by the tens of thousands. All told, these mission herds numbered nearly half a million animals in 1834. But when secularization took place, the privately owned ranches, of which there were 92 from San Diego to San Luis Obispo in 1842, became the chief sources of supply. Though some of the missions, even after secularization, continued to furnish a very considerable number of hides each year. The American vessels engaged in the hide and tallow trade came almost wholly from New England and were commonly known as the Boston ships on the California coast the voyage from new england to california by way of cape horn required from four to six months and was full of hardship and danger a fact more clearly appreciated when one remembers that the vessels averaged less than five hundred tons burden once on the california coast a trading vessel put first into the port of monterey a pleasantly situated town of white plastered red-tiled adobe houses shut in by green pine forests and blessed with one of the few safe harbors of the California coast. Here stood the only customs house the province could boast, where every trading vessel was compelled to enter its cargo. The city also served, during most of the Mexican period, as the seat of civil and military life, and as the social center of the province. The duties levied upon foreign goods were nominally high, a single vessel ordinarily paying from 5000 to $25,000 on its cargo as a matter of fact however such charges were not particularly burdensome to the foreign merchant whatever may have been their effect upon the californian once a vessel had entered its cargo at monterey it was free to trade along the whole california coast until its cargo was exhausted this usually required from a year and a half to three years and in the meantime the ship's goods might be replenished clandestinely from the cargoes of other vessels which had received no trading license evasion of tariff charges in the fashion just described was supplemented by bribery of customs house officials or through outright smuggling and even where duties were actually paid such costs were shifted for the most part from the new england merchant to the californian in the form of higher prices the revenue derived from this trade constituted almost the sole support of the civil and military branches of the government At least twice, namely in 1841 and again in 1845, when there were upwards of 50 vessels on the coast, the revenue so derived amounted to more than $100,000. In 1845, it came to $140,000. Normally, however, the receipts averaged less than $75,000. The vessels of many nations were represented, but more than half the number were of American register. A good many flew the Mexican flag, and others came from England, France, Germany, and the Sandwich Islands. Under such competition, two or three years were required for a vessel to obtain 20,000 to 40,000 hides necessary to complete its cargo. These were gathered in various ports, chief of which were San Diego, San Juan Capistrano, San Pedro, Santa Barbara, San Luis Obispo, and Monterey. With the exception of Monterey, these so-called ports afforded but poor protection during the winter months against sudden southeasters, and vessels taking on a cargo of hides were often forced to slip anchor and escape to the open sea to prevent being driven high and dry upon the beach. The supercargo, or shipowner's agent, arranged for the missions and ranches for the purchase and delivery of the hides to the nearest seaport. Traveling overland on horseback in advance of the ship, He passed from mission to mission and from ranch to ranch, a welcome guest as well as a commercial agent. The hides were transported to the seacoast on pack mules and in clumsy native carts with solid wooden wheels drawn by two oxen. Beside each animal walked an Indian driver carrying a long pointed stick with which to punch the slow-moving beast as the spirit moved him. Once arrived at the sea, the driver's work was over. The hides were dumped unceremoniously on the ground, and the Indian squatted beside the ox cart or pack mule until the sailors made ready his return load of goods. As for the hides, these were carried by the ship's crew on their heads, through surf and over stones slippery with sea moss, to the longboat which served as a means of communication between the vessel and the shore. The work was arduous and severe, but as there were no docks or wharves along the coast, No other method of loading could be devised. In the eyes of the sailors, San Pedro, with its steep landing, sticky clay soil, and long stretches of kelp-covered rocks over which the hides had to be carried, was probably the worst of the California ports. Yet, more hides were taken on here than at any other landing. In exchange for his hides, the Californian obtained goods of foreign manufacture at a profit to the shipowner of some 300%. To accommodate the buyers, each ship trading along the coast was transformed into a sort of general store. Richard Henry Dana, in his Two Years Before the Mast, a book which combines one of the best sea stories ever written with a true picture of early California life, thus describes the methods followed The trade room of the vessel was fitted up in the steerage and furnished out with the lighter goods and specimens of the rest of the cargo. For a week or ten days, all was life on board. The people came to look and buy, men and women and children. And we were continually going in the boats, carrying goods and passengers, for they have no boats of their own. Everything must dress itself and come aboard and see the new vessel, if it were only to buy a paper of pins. The agent or his clerk managed the sales while we were busy in the hold or in the boats. Our cargo was an assorted one. That is, it consisted of everything under the sun. We had spirits of all kinds sold by the cask. Teas, coffee, sugar, spices, raisins, molasses, hardware, crockeryware, tinware, cutlery, clothing of all kinds, boots and shoes from Lynn, calicoes and cotton from Lowell, crepes, silks, also shawls, scarfs, necklaces, jewelry and combs for the ladies. And in fact, everything that can be imagined from Chinese fireworks to English cartwheels, of which we had a dozen pair with their iron rims on." The purchases made by the Californians were paid for either in silver or in hides, which were commonly known as California banknotes along the coast, and generally averaged $1.50 or $2 in value. It was also the usual practice for ships regularly engaged in the trade to extend credit to many of their customers from one season to the next, receiving in return the promise of sufficient hides at the end of the year to cover the cost of the goods, together with exceedingly high interest charges. Rarely, if ever, did a Californian fail to repay these debts, for his code of honor did not permit of business dishonesty. Having completed a voyage along the coast, a hide ship landed the skins at San Diego. Here they were soaked in brine, scraped and dried, beaten with flails to rid them of dust, and finally stored in large warehouses to await shipment around the horn. The New Englander, as well as the Californian, derived very considerable advantage from the hide and tallow trade. It not only furnished much of the leather which gave Connecticut and Massachusetts a monopoly of the early boot and shoe industry in the United States, but also provided a channel through which the surplus products of New England factories might find a steady, if somewhat restricted, outlet in foreign trade. Yet, though the trade was important both to California and to New England from an economic standpoint, its enduring significance lay rather in another quarter. From it, as from the coastal fur trade and the whale fisheries, but even in a more direct way, the maritime interests of New England learned of the resources and commercial possibilities of California and became interested in her ultimate destiny." Through the Hyde and Tallow trade, more than through any other agency, New England began her expansion to the Pacific coast. End of chapter 4